<laughs> well, it's really uh, been such a tremendous joy being here with you this weekend and uh, and meeting so many of you. It's been a sweet reunion too for uh, all the former UCSD grads uh, who are down at Lighthouse and uh, and to be able to catch up with with them has been really sweet. Really weird too. Uh, because uh, when they were in San Diego, I was probably their college pastor, and so they are perpetually college students to me, uh, now college students with multiple children. Uh, but uh, yeah, what a joy uh, it's been. If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue on uh, looking at this section of Scripture, and this morning we're looking at verses 25 through 29, and I'm just going to give you a fair word of warning. We're not going to finish uh, this morning, in fact, we're going to be looking at this passage for the next three sessions, and uh, I'll give you the outline, and we'll just work through it slowly um, in, uh, to this morning, tonight, and tomorrow. So if you're taking notes, the title is The Christian's New Clothes, Part 1, and uh, we'll look at Part 2 and Part 3 in the sessions to come. The Christian's New Clothes, Part 1, Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 29. And this is God's word. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Let's pray one more time. Gracious God, we thank you for this time together. And the blessing that it is to fellowship with one another, a fellowship that we know and trust and hope in, that it will continue on for eternity. God, we are so grateful that in you, you have called us together as brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we have a union, Lord, that this world doesn't understand, a bond and a oneness that is profound and deep, centered in Christ established by you. And so we give you praise. Thank you, Lord, so much for the songs that we get to sing that reflect your truth. Thank you, Lord, for how it fills our hearts with joy and worship to you. And now as we open up your word, we pray that you would once again be gracious to us to teach us and to lead us in that truth, to change us, transform us more into the image of your Son, and be glorified, Lord, through our time together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that the Lord Jesus was teaching about good trees and bad trees. In case you didn't know, I didn't make that up. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that apples and oranges are necessarily good or bad, or that one is superior over the other, but Jesus uses this analogy at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to just explain that a good tree is going to produce good fruit, and a bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. That a changed life is necessarily uh, what 
happens when you come to Christ for salvation. That you really don't see anyone in the Bible get saved, understand the gospel of grace, and then life just carries on as if nothing had happened. As we've been kind of walking through this theme about how we aren't what we once were, that things are different now, that I don't think the way that I used to think, and I don't speak the way that I used to speak, and I don't even feel the way that I used to feel. All my interests are different. My, my, my hobbies and everything, everything that I do now is in Christ. I hope you understand that, right? That if you're sitting here and you're married, that you're not just a husband or a wife. You're a husband in Christ, and you're a wife in Christ. If you're a student in school, you're not just a student, you're a student in Christ. And whatever occupation you have, you're a doctor in Christ and a teacher in Christ. And everything that we do now is filtered through who we are in Him. And as we've been explaining this, I hope it's kind of just being ingrained into your thinking That this is, if you are a Christian, if you are saying that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, this is necessarily your testimony. I'm different now. Everything has changed for me now that I'm in Christ. I no longer produce the fruit that I once produced. I am completely changed and transformed into a new creation. The old has passed away. New things have come. This hit home for me very hard when I was uh, in my early years of college. Like I said, I was a bit of a charlatan growing up, you know, thinking I was a Christian, acting like I was a Christian, telling people I was a Christian, and completely deceived. And one thing that should have gotten, you know, given me a clue to all of that was the things that I enjoyed and the things that I uh, participated in. And when the Lord kind of just shook my whole world and turned it upside down and grabbed a hold of me, I realized how little I had in common with the friends I used to hang out with. And it wasn't like I deliberately went back to them and just cut them all off, but we just, we didn't have anything to talk about anymore. We didn't engage in the same things anymore. And it was them that came to me and said, what happened? What changed? You used to be so cool. I said, I'm still cool. We're different now. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is essentially communicating the same message, just using a different metaphor. Not talking about good trees and bad trees, but talking about clothing. And how the old man has been shed off. And now that we are in Christ, the new man has been put on. And that if we are in Christ, if we are professing believers, then we ought to have this new look to our lives. Understanding, of course, that the things that we do are not what gain us favor with the Lord. It doesn't gain us any credibility with Him. It's not like when we do these good things, we kind of eke our way into heaven and kind of get into His good graces. It is the outflow of our new nature of who I am now in Christ, with His Spirit within me. These are the things I desire to do because I have new desires. The things that I pursue because I understand there is no greater pursuit. And so as you look at me, hopefully you see that there are different clothes on. And we got to sing a song from a, a musical last night. It was a lot of fun. But... uh 
Imagine going to a play or a musical and the characters in the production were all wearing the wrong costumes. I mean, think about how chaotic and how confusing that would be. Like a doctor dressed like a priest, you know, or a soldier dressed like a firefighter or or whatever. If they're not wearing the right clothes, it just brings a whole lot of confusion. And it's the same thing with the Christian life. We ought to be clothed with Christ. We ought to be clothed with, with this new man that has been put on. And when people hear that we have a Christian testimony, but see something that is so different than what we say, if we unsay with our actions and our lives what we profess with our speech, it's likewise confusing. And so, positionally, this isn't anything that we necessarily do simply on our own. We can't. We need Him to work in us and to do these things in us. And we strive to be obedient and to do these things in the strength that He provides. But every believer has had this old man stripped off. Every believer has had the new man put on. And that's crucial to a correct understanding of what it means to call yourself a Christian. The only thing is, having had that old man stripped off, and having had that new man put on, practically, isn't it so hard sometimes to live consistently with that reality, to live in accordance with this new identity, that we do what we do because we are who we are, and that even though the old self, the one that was identified in Adam, even though that has you know, been put off, we still have a tendency to resort back to that old life with its, with its practices. And even though we know that the new man has been put on, that, that we are now in Christ, and he empowers us by his Spirit to walk by the Spirit and no longer according to the flesh, we understand how difficult it is sometimes to walk consistently in that as well. And this is basically the process of our ongoing sanctification. It's a process that will continue on till the day that we die. This constant process of living in light of this reality. But the Bible is precise here that both aspects of this are necessary. That when it comes to the way that we live, there needs to be a sense of us putting off this old self and putting on the new self. It isn't just about stopping sinful and unrighteous and lawless thoughts and behavior, but also replacing those things with godly, righteous, obedient thoughts and behavior. It isn't enough just to say stop it, but replacing those evil things with things that are good. I remember talking to a young man in our college ministry who'd been enslaved to pornography for years. And he finally fessed up and came to my office and we were talking. And through the process of counseling him, I'm so, I'm so grateful that what he had been enslaved to for years, he's now freed from. It's hardly a thought in his life anymore. But one of the things I remember his face when I told him, you know, I'm going to give you some homework this week. 
And this, isn't, this wasn't all the counsel I gave him, but it was just part of the whole process of all of this. I said, I want you to go home and I want you to think of some ways that you can serve others in the church. You know, there was a couple that had just had a baby, and I said, I want you to join their meal ministry. I want you to join our cleaning ministry. You know, I want you to start, even if you can't find any other way to serve, we have a prayer meeting that, that happens before service. I want you to start coming and, and, and joining that. And he was just kind of confused, like, what does this have anything to do with my struggle? And I helped him to see that, you know, the sin that he was particularly caught up in was so self-centered. And yeah, I want to do everything I can to eradicate this from your life, but we need to replace it with something. You've been so accustomed to just serving yourself, and I want you to start replacing that with service of others, thinking of other people beyond your, yourself. Because of who we are positionally, we're called to put off the thoughts and behaviors of the old self and put on the thoughts and the behaviors of the new self, to remember that everything I am now, I am in Christ. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul helps us now. Now that I have these new clothes, what do these clothes look like? What is this outfit that I'm wearing and what does it look like? And I'm just going to tell you right now, he kind of gets into our kitchen. We like vague generalities. We like, you know, just general principles that we ought to abide by. But when we start getting specific, it gets uncomfortable. And the Apostle Paul starts to get a bit specific. Helping us to understand what kinds of behavior we ought to stop doing and the kinds of behavior we ought to do instead. And the verses really follow this pattern. It's a pattern that we see throughout Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, where there's a don't do, but do, right? Don't do this, but do this. You know, don't be unwise, but be wise, right? Don't be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And and you're going to continue seeing this pattern of don't do this, but do this. And then he kind of throws in, and here's the reason why. Don't do this, do this, and let me tell you why. Don't do this, do this, and let me tell you why. And these following verses kind of follow with that pattern. This morning, we're going to look at the two verses that deal with our speech. And if you're taking notes, the outline eventually is going to have four. Four ways that the Christian's clothes have changed. Four ways that the Christian's clothes have changed. And this morning, we're going to look at two of them. And then we'll look at tonight the third one and tomorrow morning at the last one. Okay? But two ways, or four ways, two this morning, but four ways that the Christian's clothes have changed. Verse 25 starts it off where it says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, if we are members of one another. The first way that the Christian's clothes have changed is that we are called to put off falsehood and put on truth. Put off falsehood and put on truth. Well, how do we know that the Apostle Paul now is giving us you know, examples of what he just talked about? It starts with the word therefore. Connecting this to the previous context. But more than that, in this verse, he says laying aside falsehood. And that verb is the same verb that we saw in verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. He's still using this language of shedding off old, dirty, death stench clothes and putting on this new man that we have in Christ. 
And so clearly he's providing application for what he had just been talking about in verses 22 to 24. Having laid aside falsehood, or even since you have put off falsehood, this is where he begins. That as Christians, we are to put off falsehood and put on truth. This is something that ought to be kind of a duh moment, right, for us as believers. I mean, even unbelievers would tell you, yeah, falsehood is a a bad thing. There really is no place for falsehood in the life of the believer. And yet, a lot of times, this can seem as one of those, you know, Jerry Bridges respectable sins. Is it really all that bad? Isn't this something that everyone struggles with from time to time? John MacArthur provides a a helpful list of what might be included in this kind of falsehood. Obviously lying, right? If we're just given to lying, I remember counseling a, a, a young man one time years ago who, I, I mean, it just didn't make any sense, the stuff he would lie about. Exaggeration, you know, last night when Christina and I sang, it was the greatest performance you'd ever seen in your life. You know, exaggeration, cheating. Flattery, telling people what they want to hear or telling them good things to gain for yourself. Excuses. MacArthur would even add sinful silence. Moments where you should speak up with the truth and you remain silent instead. The only thing maybe I would add to his list is slander. Speaking false untruths about someone to influence others thinking about them. I mean, there's no place for this in the Christian's life. And again, this is just something that all believers should be like, well, yeah, of course, even the world would come alongside and say, yeah, these things are awful. And imagine, this is your clothing. I mean, imagine if you were wearing a shirt that just said, liar. I'm a liar. But if that was an accurate representation of your character, of your behavior... And think about how backwards that would be as someone who is professing the gospel, someone who sings the songs. That Jesus is everything to me, that I want nothing else in this life. And all the while you're wearing this shirt that says, I'm a liar. How backwards is that? How unbelieving is that? Because in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it talks about how as unbelievers we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That our entire existence was summarized by untruth. But as believers, we're called to put off falsehood and put on truth. That being a Christian means that the light of God's truth has shone in my heart and that I'm no longer in the darkness of error. This is consistent with who God is. And I'm sure you've been instructed in this. In a church like this, I have to believe that you've been instructed in this. That we worship the God of truth. Amen? Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 16 says, Blessed is he who, who uh, blessed he is, uh, sorry, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. Twice in that verse, Isaiah refers to God as the God of truth. God is truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. In the upper room, when he's talking to his disciples, three times in John 14, 15, and 16, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. So whether you're talking about the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, our God is truth, which then doesn't surprise us when Jesus prays in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Because if God is truth, then what springs forth from him, what is uttered from him, is truth itself. By contrast, in passages like John 8, 44, Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. And so when we engage in untruth, what side are we in league with? What side are we kind of showing an allegiance to. Even when we tell our little white lies, even when we bend the truth a little bit, and when we make these excuses, even the excuses about our sins are lies. When we buy into the excuses and we buy into these lies, I'm not hurting anyone, am I? Oh, it's just this one time. No one's, no one's going to see I'm not going to face any consequences for this. Even the great lie, I only struggle when I'm alone. When are you ever alone? Even the excuses that we give to write off our sins are lies themselves. Our God is truth. And as His children, as we seek to bear His resemblance, we ought to walk in the truth, instead of speaking falsehood, we ought to speak truth to one another. If you look at your Bible, hopefully you see that the, the verse there is in all caps. And that means that it's quoting something from the Old Testament. And here, the Apostle Paul is quoting the book of Zechariah, chapter 8 and verse 16, where it says this, These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. And let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh. And what I love about this is that it falls right on the heels of, of what God had promised his people. That in light of all the you know, exile and judgment that his people had been facing, he promises that I'm still your God and I will show you my good. I will be good to you because I am your good God and I'm faithful to my promises. And here is the expectation that I have for you. That this is the way that God expects his people to conduct themselves. Speak truth to one another. This is the second time that the Apostle Paul has exhorted the Ephesians in this. Back in verse 15, he said, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And here, the Apostle Paul gives us the reason. Put off, put on, and let me tell you why. Put off falsehood, put on truth, and here's the reason why. Do you see it in verse 25? For we are members of one another. We're members of one another. It's a body analogy. That we're 
part of a collective whole. This is the message that he had been communicating since Ephesians 2. That God corporately has brought all of us together into one new man. I mean, you take a look around. And we're so different. I mean, even just meeting some of you, we understand that we're just different. I was talking to someone this morning about how he's just not a musical fan. And I'm like, well, I am, right? (laughs) You know, we just have different interests. I mean, some of you are, I don't know, into gaming, and I, I just don't understand it, right? Uh, some of you are into BTS, and I, t- I really don't understand it. <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> I kid, I kid. There's nothing wrong with gaming. I mean, when you look around and you see each other, in a lot of ways, we have really nothing to do with each other. I mean, we might have some similarities. We might have, but I mean, we come from different backgrounds, different families, different upbringings, different experiences, different interests. There's so much that's different about us, but we still come together. And we have a wide variety of testimonies. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, and maybe that's a lot of your testimonies as well. We have a gal in our church who grew up in the Czech Republic. Uh, she grew up thinking that Christianity was for weak people, for old people, people who needed an emotional crutch. She thought Christians were stupid, and then God got a hold of her and transformed her and changed her. And now you know what her area of specialty is? Apologetics, defending the faith. I love it. I love it. We had a gal who grew up Buddhist, came to our church, two weeks came to our church and got saved. And it was just amazing, the transformation that took place. And I remember talking to her about it and just the whole process of Buddhism. And I remember explaining to her how, how, you know, just backwards it is and how impossible it is because we just can't get better. We're enslaved to our sin. It's it's an exercise in futility to try to earn some next level in the next life. And she said, Patrick, it's more than that. I never even considered it this way. She said, my whole life, the thing I wrestled with is that Buddhism is a religion of loneliness. Pastor, don't you understand that in the next life, I have no guarantee that I'm going to see any of my loved ones ever again. And the thing that strikes me about Christianity is what Jesus says, that I am with you always, even to the end. That we have an eternal fellowship with brothers and sisters that will carry on to eternity. That is beautiful. We had a gal who grew up in Iran, Muslim. And you know what brought her to the Lord? Biblical manhood and womanhood. The idea that women are created equal in the image of God was astounding to her. Because in her country, a man can marry three wives, and if he's not pleased with one, he can kill her. And technically, yeah, it's illegal, but he's not going to get in trouble. She told her mom, Listen to this doctrine that Christianity teaches. And her mom said, isn't that wonderful? And we come from all over. And the thing that binds us is Christ. We're members of one another. And if we are members of one another, then why would we sin against our own body? It would be as stupid as taking a knife and cutting off the own pieces of my body which is a detriment to the whole. 
Think about this in application. Think about your speech. Do you speak true words? I mean, let's just start with the gospel. Are you known as a believer, as someone who proclaims the gospel of truth? Do the people around you, by looking at your life and hearing your speech in particular, do they see a big God in your lives? Is there that evidence? When they think about you, they say, that is a Christian who loves Jesus. Whether they're saying that positively or negatively, do your words give you away? Do you instruct others in the truth? Counsel them in the truth. Encourage them in the truth. Admonish them in the truth. Exhort them in the truth. Correct them in the truth. Strengthen them in the truth. Is it driven and guided by His Word, which is truth? Or are you simply one that just gives advice? Because it sounds like it's right? Or do you give advice because it simply just worked for you? Uh, I might be getting into your kitchen a little bit. I remember when Christine and I were engaged and there was an older couple at our church who looked at me and said, hey, before you have kids, enjoy your marriage. You know, I want, I want, you, you really should just wait years before you have, like really enjoy your marriage before you have kids. And I just remember thinking, I would hate to be your kids. Sorry, guys, you've ruined our marriage. And what an unbiblical way of thinking. Psalm 127 says that our children are a heritage from the Lord, and how blessed is the one whose quiver is full of them. I'll tell you, when Christine and I first had Eden, first of all, it wasn't the timing that we had expected. Lo and behold, we're not sovereign over our family, right? But secondly, I will, I will argue till I'm in my grave that probably nothing has really enhanced our marriage more than being parents. Nothing has brought us together more as a team where we are on each other's side more than being parents. And we are on the same team, and the opposite team are our kids, right? (laughs) They are the enemy. (laughs) And so far the kids are in the lead, but we're catching up. We're doing good. No, I mean the counsel that you give, the advice that you give, is it driven by God's truth? Makes sense, right? Secondly, not just putting off falsehood and putting on truth, but secondly, put off rotten speech. Put off rotten speech and put on edifying speech. I'm just going to tell you, I don't normally do that. I don't normally jump verses, but I'm trying to cram four sermons into three, right? Playing catch up because we kind of messed things up this weekend, and that's my fault. But look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Hopefully you saw the pattern once again. Don't do this, but do this. And let me give you the reason why. Right? Uh, Some of the biggest lies that we tell are to our kids. Uh, In the little maxims and proverbs that we tell our kids, and we know that we mean well, but I mean, consider this lie that is straight from the pit of hell. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Or, I am rubber and you are glue, and whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you, right? And we tell our kids these things because we want them to cope with bullying and and ignore the harsh things that people say to them, but there is nothing farther from the truth. 
Bones will mend. Bruises will heal. And I'd imagine in a room this size, some of you have been spoken to with such harsh words that the wounds are still remaining with you. I mean, consider the testimony of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Or Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 11, verse 9. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. I had a chance to counsel a couple, and the, the husband struggled with this, with abusive speech. And as he's railing on, on me now and defending his behavior, there's his wife just huddled in a corner, just weeping. And I look at her. She's bleeding out. She's bleeding out, and you don't care. That's your wife. It's no wonder that the Scripture instructs us to exercise self-control and even restraint with our words. And I tell you, that's humbling for me because I talk a lot. You know, we talk about the peacemaker pledge and making peace with people in the church. And sometimes I feel like I'm the poster boy for peacemaker, you know? I have so many conversations with our members. If you come down to San Diego, come to Lighthouse, stick, stick around long enough, I will offend you. You know, I just talk a lot. And with many words, transgression is inevitable. I am always putting my foot in my mouth. And it's just such a sad thing. Proverbs 17 says, He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. So again, don't do this, do this. Uh, And here's the reason why. Here's the don't. Don't say rotten words. Because that's what the word unwholesome means. And don't let any unwholesome word, don't let any unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. This is the same word in Matthew 7, where Jesus was talking about good trees and bad trees. It's the same word, the same adjective that Jesus used to describe the bad trees. You either got good fruit that's good for food, the fruit looks wonderful on that, on that branch, you could pluck it off and eat it right there and then, and then you got the tree with rotten fruit, worms crawling all over it, mold growing all over it, and there isn't anyone, unless you're just crazy, who would reach up and say, now there's the good stuff. I remember when I was in college, uh, you know, we were college guys, uh, we had a bag of rice, and every night we would hear like rustling. <laughs> you know where this is going. <laughs> One of my roommates went with a pair of scissors, cut off the corner, and we started dumping the rice into a, a, a bucket, and four mice fell out. And once the mice were gone, we could eat the rest of the rice. So, no, I'm kidding. No. Gross. Gross. But we had, a, we had a gallon of milk in the fridge, and I, I didn't know. You know. I thought, no one else is home. I just popped the thing open and took a giant swig out of it. And I was like, why is there effervescence? Why does this kind of taste like 7-Up? It's supposed to be milk. And then the chunks started coming into my mouth and, uh, and ran straight to the bathroom and you can kind of fill in the rest of the... And just disgusting. That's this word. That's this word. 
This is how God views our sinful speech. It's a word in the Greek New Testament that's used to describe a foul stench in Joel 2, verse 20, and even translates the Hebrew word for maggot in Job 25, verse 6. The Apostle Paul leaves no wiggle room. Every word that is putrid, rotten, do not spew it out of your mouth. And yeah, there is a relationship here to verse 25, because obviously falsehood would qualify. Right? Think about lying. David speaks about this in Psalm 109, verses 1 and 2. O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. I think that's always interesting. David is one whose very life was in danger. And the first thing he comes out with in the, out of the gates is not, God, they have their arrows pointed at me. The thing that caused David so much pain was their words. Their mouths are full of deceit, Lord. But your truth. Think about gossip and slander. The Bible oftentimes labels this as the whisperer or the talebearer. Proverbs eleven thirteen: He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Or Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Did you catch the parallelism there? You are not to be a slanderer. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. I think about insults and the way that we demean each other. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, that not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Or what about, <laughs> I'm going to get into our kitchen a little bit, crudeness or biting sarcasm. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, there must be no filthiness saying or doing indecent things, no silly talk, saying stupid things, and no coarse jesting, crude humor, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Or maybe a verse that I should memorize, Proverbs chapter 26, verses 18 and 19, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? And I'll be the first to tell you, there's a time and place to have fun. And uh, I am just a living, walking troll. I mean, everyone in San Diego knows that. But I can't tell you the countless numbers of times that I was just kidding. And the person that I was talking to was just not in the mood. I mean, not just not in the mood, I mean, sometimes bringing people to tears because something that I said. It's something I talk to with the collegians a lot. You know, it's a fun time, right? It's a, it's a sweet time of your lives. I was saved when I was in college, and it's just a wonderful, special time of our lives. But and it's, I'm going to talk to the guys a little bit. It's fun to have fun and to joke around and to mess around, but is that what you want to be known for? Like by the time you graduate, do you just want to be known as the clown of your class? 
I remember there was one guy who came to me uh, one time. He was senior in college. And he said, Pastor Patrick, can I meet with you for lunch? I said, sure. And he said, you know, I'm thinking about seminary. I couldn't help myself. I said, I wouldn't go to your church. I can't take you seriously. I haven't been able to take you seriously for four years. Why would anyone come to you for counsel? I said some nice things too. <laughs> but seriously, is that what you want to be known for? Again, there's a time for joking. There's a time for playing but don't you want to be known as an encourager? Don't you want to be known as someone who that people can go to for godly counsel and for prayer? Don't you want to be known as a man or a woman of faith? Isn't that what you want your reputation to be? These are the clothes that we put on. I mean, the Bible tells us, stop being stupid. Not that in that phrase. But essentially... I want to be known as someone who builds up, not someone who tears down. Again, even unbelievers would agree. Even unbelievers would listen to this and say, see, this is the kind of stuff I like in the Bible, right? This is the kind of life that we should lead. And yet, even still, keep in mind, they still participate in the wickedness that they talk about. They can't help it. They're enslaved to their sin. They're bred for hypocrisy. But not you. Not only that, their standard is themselves. They're known for calling what is evil good and what is good evil. Yeah, they might be right every once in a while. You know, the proverbial broken clock is right two times a day. Not a digital clock, guys. You'll get it someday. Their reference point is themselves. You know, they'll dismiss as hate speech what we understand to be the truth. We were created for something better, something different. As Christians, we are able to correctly identify rotten speech because we are saved. To the unbelieving heart, gossip is a choice morsel that they crave after. But to the Christian, because we are in Christ, our gossip should taste like spoiled milk. We are to put off this rotten speech. And instead, put on. Put on edifying speech. Notice the goal is edification. Oikodome, that's the Greek word to build a house. A construction kind of term, building a structure that our speech should build others up and not tear them down. But it's not just some sentimental thing. Notice that the verse doesn't say anything about how they might feel about what you have to say. It's not that feelings don't matter. In fact, I would argue that feelings do matter. Our feelings matter and how we say things matters. We are to speak the truth, verse 15, but we are to speak the truth in love. And being right doesn't give you the right to be a jerk. But the goal here is edification. The verse actually doesn't say anything about a person's feelings. We are to say things that will help build people up, and strengthen their faith. Think about Romans chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. 
Our goal is to build people up. And so edifying speech is speech that's good for your neighbor. Good for the person sitting next to you. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. Does that describe your speech? It's one of the, when I get back from sabbatical, ironically, I'm going on a trip. Sabbatical ends in the end of September, and the first week of October, I'm in Memphis for the ACBC conference. Our elders let us go on one conference trip every year outside of Shepherd's Conference, and so as long as it's in the continental U.S., you can fly there and go. And every year, we choose ACBC. And we could go to any of the conferences, but we just love ACBC. Why? Because biblical counselors astound me. I mean, I'm just so... <laughs> I think about Proverbs 15, verse 23. A man has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. And when you know what to say and how to say it and when to say it, and you are skilled in that, that is a skill that I envy. I wish I had that. I'm the kind of counselor that you come to me and I'll tell you exactly what you need to do. And then you ask to meet again and I'm like, what's the point? I told you what, you want me to just replay it for you? I can just hit play and you can listen. You know, that's me. Like, just do it. Stop being stupid. Stop, (laughs) right? I love the patience that biblical counselors have. You know, John Kim is like this. I remember one time I got a chance to sit together with John Kim for a counseling session and the person's kind of spilling his guts and immediately like two or three passages came to mind. I'm like, this is going to be a 10-minute meeting. You know, it's John. It ended up being like three hours. And he never went to the passages that I thought of. And I'm like, John, those were the, the key passages. He didn't get to those passages until session three. That's the difference between a counselor that knows what they're doing and me, <laughs> Right? I, I just, I love that. Proverbs 15, verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you have speech that's wise for the moment? When someone comes to you with their troubles and, and their pain, would you know where to turn? Because obviously, if you don't know this, you're not going to know what to say. If you don't know the truth, you can't speak the truth. And there are times in counseling, I'll tell you, I remember one time I pulled up to the driveway of someone's house. They'd called me desperate in need of help. I pulled into the driveway, and this was literally my prayer. God, I don't even know how this conversation is going to start. I don't know what sentence is going to come out of my mouth to open up our time together. I am absolutely clueless as to what to say and what to do. And the counseling session actually went well. And I remember coming back out to my car and saying, God, that was entirely you. I had no plan. I had no plan. Thank you for using your word. Thank you for your spirit working in their lives to bring them to repentance. Because that obviously was not me. It obviously wasn't me. Yes, we are bent tools. We are cracked pots but God can use us if we know his truth. And are we committed to speaking that truth in love? Are we committed to edifying speech? Do we know, do we even know how to talk to one another? Because life is more than just music and video games and sports. Life is more than that. 
And you never know because people put up a good front. I have this weird privileged position. When I look out at our church, I see all of their problems. I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. And I see you there with your smiles on, acting like everything is fine. And I know your world is falling apart. And so you have no idea how far a timely word could go. Even just turning to someone and asking them, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? And how can I pray for you? You could literally save a life. But even with the knowledge of God's word, this is something that is so hard sometimes to do. To know what to say. Because sometimes people are incredibly difficult to read. Richard Baxter said this, Let not your tongues run before your mind. I love that. Let not your tongues run before your mind. It's better to speak too little than too much. You have two ears and one tongue. Hear twice and speak once. We repent more of speaking than of being silent. Either be silent or say something that is better than silence. I love that. Don't say putrid things. Say edifying things, and here's why. Here's why. So that, and that's always a giveaway for here's why, right? So that it will give grace to those who hear. How wonderful is that as those of us who have received grace through Christ that God can use you as an instrument of his grace to others. Our speech should be saturated with grace. Right? Colossians 4 verse 6 Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Any people like to cook here? I really like to cook. I'm, I'm a cooker. And uh, if you ever come down to San Diego, just give us a call. We'll have you over. I'll cook for you, right? And, uh, you know, the YouTube videos that you watch, you know, binging with Babish and Joshua Wiseman and, and Gordon Ramsay and, and all the rest, right? And, and I remember just you know, taking down recipes and trying them out. Gordon Ramsay's sausage and rice, so good. So good. But uh, I remember, you know, I had in my Amazon wish list. A box of Malden seasons, uh, sea salt. Flake salt. Because you know, I would watch these cooking programs. At the very end, they would just, right? Just the salt right on top. And it was not only just for the flavor, but for the aesthetic. It's beautiful, right? On top of a nicely baked cookie or on top of a perfectly, perfectly cooked steak. Just right at the end. Just a little sprinkle of salt to lift it up, to bring it to another height. And the Bible speaks about our words this way. As you're speaking to one another, right before the words come out, right before you utter what you want to utter, just bring just a little bit of grace, right? Just a little grace, right? Use your words to point people to Christ. That's who they need. They need him. Show them Christ. They need him more than anything else. 
Point them to Christ and follow in his example. Listen to the words of Luke chapter 4, verse 22. All were speaking well of him. All were speaking well of Jesus. And wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Jesus spoke with grace. He spoke words of salvation. He spoke words of hope and forgiveness and restoration and healing. And like Jesus, may the Lord use our words to bring sinners to repentance. May the Lord use our words to comfort those who are hurting. God, use my words to lift up and give hope to those that are downcast and discouraged and in despair. Use my words to restore those who have wondered. Heal the brokenhearted. The application is simple. Even as you think about it for today. And I would say especially if you're the kind of person that's known to be the clown. In what ways today will you use your speech to lift up someone? To be an encouragement to them? To shed off that old clothing and put on the clothing that Christ wants you to wear. Let your words be a blessing. Because you can be funny. There's nothing wrong with being funny. But you also want to be wise. And you want to put on the Lord's goodness and give grace to those who hear. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. So good, Lord, to open up your word together. And I pray, God, that it would be a help to our souls. God, this is more than just about a moralistic piety. This is more than just behavioral modification. Lord, we want true heart change. And so I pray that you would be gracious to allow your word to penetrate the hardness of our hearts and to change us from within. Convict our souls of our wickedness and lead us in righteousness. And Father, if there are any ways that we fail in these things, I pray that you would grant us the gift of repentance. Give us faith, Lord, and help us not to quickly forget your word. Let it remain with us throughout the day and really the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.